Welcome to the First Friends Church Podcast. This month, we are celebrating the Christmas season with our sermon series, Open the Door. During these weeks, we will see how God has chosen to open the door and invite us into a relationship with Him, despite our rebellion and despite our sin. God wants a personal relationship with you this Advent season. So Merry Christmas, and now let's go to our Christmas series with Pastor Nathaniel. I'm not sure how many kids we have in um, the, the sanctuary this morning, but for those of you kids who are here, I want to ask you a question. Do you ever dream of being in charge? Maybe that doesn't just apply to children. Maybe it applies to all of us. But kids, if you ever dream of that, if you ever dream of that day when you are in charge, when maybe, maybe you imagine yourself as the parent, and now finally you get to tell other people what to do <clears throat> rather than being told what to do. If that's your case, you're not alone. Did you know that Jesus' disciples had that very same dream? That's what we just heard in the passage from Mark that the Smith family read for us. Thank you, by the way for doing that. James and John, two of of Christ's closest disciples, just sort of sidling up to Jesus as they walk along the road, asking Him to give them the highest positions of honor in His kingdom. That when He came in glory, they would have that right to sit at His right hand and His left hand. But in order for us to get the full impact of what happens in the story, we need to know the context. The three verses that come immediately before the ones that were just read. If you don't have a hard copy of the Bible with you this morning and you'd like to borrow one for this service, we have some ushers that are coming back down the aisles now with some copies. And if you catch their eye or raise your hand, they'll be glad to give you one. And I know that for those of you who are regular attenders, you hear this each week, but for those of you for whom this may be the first time that you're here, if you do not own a hard copy Bible and you would like one, please then accept this one as a gift from us. And you don't need to return it. Um, Take it with you and read it. That would be a great blessing to you and to us. So I'm going to read the verses that precede the passage that was just read. I'll be reading from Mark chapter 10, beginning with verse 32. Uh, Mark is one of four books that we call Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So Mark is the second book of the New Testament. If you are unfamiliar with the Bible as a book, the easiest way to find Mark probably is by looking at the table of contents, and it will take you right there. Um, We call these four books Gospels because each one of them gives a a little insight into the life of Jesus. So none of these four books contain everything that Jesus said or did, but they're sort of a highlight reel of teachings of Christ, of actions that He took, and of things that He had to say that, that the Holy Spirit has preserved for us in the form of the written Scripture for all these years. So I'll be reading again from Mark chapter 10, beginning with verse 32. They were on their way up to Jerusalem, with Jesus leading the way, 
And the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. And I'm guessing that some of you at this point are saying, wait, 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 what season of the year are we in? Um, this, this sounds an awful lot like Lent and Holy Week and Good Friday. It doesn't really sound a lot like Advent and Christmas, but there's a point to this. I want us to move through this narrative flow, looking at um, maybe as, as a, a literature teacher or an author would, would examine it. So looking at the, the setting of the story, then the rising action, the conflict, the climax, and then ultimately the, re the resolution. So we begin with the setting. Where are we? This account happens on the road to Jerusalem. Jesus is leading the way while his disciples and other followers, we're not told exactly who they are, are following behind him. The disciples are amazed. The other, disciple, the other followers, rather, are fearful. We don't know exactly why. But it's at the impact of the things that Jesus has done and said and taught. The fact that Jesus is leading the way is important because he's leading the way to the cross. This is the sole purpose of his journey to Jerusalem. He's not being dragged against his will. He's fully submitted to the Father, and he's on his way to suffering and death. He's not being driven there. He is leading the way. The rising action begins in this, in this story as Jesus takes some time to step aside just with his disciples and tell them what's coming. This is the most detailed prediction of his suffering and death that Jesus gives in the Gospels. It's very direct and to the point. We're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. I want to ask you a question. We've just heard this. You've, you've heard it read twice. Was anything vague about this? Was Jesus unclear in what he said? Did he use confusing language? No, he didn't. Which makes the response of the disciples all the more puzzling and heartbreaking. Because the question that James and John ask Jesus comes immediately after Jesus has made this pronouncement of his death. There's no way they could have misunderstood, yet right after it, they say, teacher, um, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. One question that I, I never like hearing is, are you free tomorrow? Or are you free this afternoon? It's like, before I reveal that, why are you asking? So, in this case, they, they, they want this, this promise from Jesus, this commitment that he's going to give them whatever they ask before they even ask it. And Jesus kind of plays along with them for a little bit. He says, okay, what do you want me to do? Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. There's no way 
that James and John could have misunderstood what Jesus said earlier, unless they have intentionally chosen to mishear. Now, maybe some of you are familiar with this phenomenon. It's the phenomenon called selective hearing. Are you familiar with it? Children are particularly good at practicing selective hearing, but not just children, all of us really are. I remember a long time ago, Micah was very young, probably six or seven, maybe even younger, and I said something to him like, I'm gonna talk to mom and we'll see if maybe, maybe later you can have some media time or tablet time. You know what Micah heard? Later, you can have some tablet time. He didn't hear the maybe, he didn't hear, I'm gonna talk to mom about it. All he heard was, I'm gonna have tablet time later. The disciples have ignored everything that Jesus just said, except perhaps for the last three words, he will rise. Yes, Jesus will rise to power. That's why we're going to Jerusalem, James and John imagine. He's gonna finally take his place. He's gonna boot the Romans out the people, the population of Jerusalem is gonna flock to him. People are gonna, men are gonna stand up as warriors. They're gonna take up their swords. They're gonna take up their, even their hoes and their garden implements and they're gonna flock to this leader and by his incredible charisma and power, he is going to purify our government. He is going to kick the invaders out and he's going to reestablish David's kingship here on earth and we want to be on the right and the left of his throne in that palace in Jerusalem when that time comes. And they're saying, we want to be honored with Jesus. We want to be noticed. We want power. We want to be at his right and left. So as, G as Christ expresses the utter humiliation and suffering that await him, the disciples respond immediately with arrogance and foolishness, a request that's highly inappropriate at best and downright selfish at worst. According to David A. Garland, who's a commentator, a scholar, Jesus has described all he's about to give, and they come with a shopping list of all they want to get. James and John selfishly, arrogantly, foolishly ask for positions of honor and glory at Christ's right and left hand. And something else that's ironic here, particularly in the Gospel of Mark, is that the only time that this phrase word for word is repeated again, one on his right and the other on his left, has to do with the thieves on the cross on either side of Christ. And so often when we picture honor and power and glory, we don't picture the cross. And we don't picture the thieves nailed there beside Jesus. This question that they would ask is tone deaf. I, I imagine that a, a mom or a dad of a family calls their whole family together, children, spouses, grandchildren, whoever it may be, and shares with them that they have terminal cancer. And immediately one of the kids says, uh, can I have the house? This is, this, is, this is what James and John essentially have done. Which brings us to the central conflict of this account. The question that Jesus asks the two brothers then reveals that central conflict. And here's the central conflict of the narrative. My kingdom versus Christ's kingdom. 
Jesus asks them, can you drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism I will receive? That word cup is an allusion to wrath and judgment, the wrath and judgment of God on sin and on evil. And then baptism is that image of death, of being overwhelmed, of being put under. Jesus is asking them, can you die for the world? Can you take on yourself the judgment of all souls before a holy God? And of course, the question was meant to be rhetorical, but again, James and John totally miss it. Sure. Yeah, yeah, we can. We can drink your cup. We can, we can submit to your baptism because in their minds, they're still thinking honor, glory, earthly power. They're like, we, yeah, we can. We, we, we can. And just to make things clear that this is not an attitude only reflected in James and John, Mark brings the other 10 disciples into the picture. And according to Mark, the other disciples are what? They're indignant with James and John. But not because they couldn't believe the audacity of the request. It's because James and John beat them to it. They wanted those positions of honor and power and glory. And those rotten, sneaky brothers, they slipped their request in first, those weasels. So let's note the contrast. The attitude of my kingdom in the disciples. They wanted position, not humility. They wanted authority, not service. They wanted glory, not death. And they wanted comfort, not suffering. And that's the way of my kingdom. My kingdom avoids suffering and service at all costs, and it exalts me. My kingdom sets self up as the highest, the best, the authority, the master. My kingdom would never willingly serve or suffer. My kingdom and the kingdom of God are absolutely incompatible. So I want to back up a few lines and note how Jesus responded to what James and John said about being able to drink his cup and submit to his baptism. Yes, you will drink the cup and be baptized with my baptism, Jesus says to them, but, but not in the way they thought, right? They're still thinking glory. They chose to understand that this meant that they would be honored as Christ was honored, that, that they would be lifted high as he would be lifted high. And again, there's an irony there because when Jesus talks about the cross, he says, when I am lifted high, I will draw all people unto myself. And, and of course, again, this is, the disciples hear that when I am lifted high and what they hear is whew, glory, which is the ultimate destination, right? But in Christ's perspective, he's most glorified on the cross. Jesus is warning them that his road of suffering and death was going to be their road too. Not to the same extent, because they would not bear the sins of the world. They would not be the receivers of the judgment that should have come upon each individual in all history, that, we, that, those, that debt that we should all pay for our own brokenness and sin and rebellion. But Jesus is saying, you know what, following me, which you're doing right now, Jesus was leading, they were following, following me means following me to the cross. Because it's at the cross that self is crucified, that Christ is truly made king of each of our hearts. 
and that all the bitterness and all the rage and all the evil and wickedness and just brokenness that we carry, all of it goes to the cross with Jesus. He takes it all. And what does he give us in return? New hearts, new lives, utter forgiveness, total freedom. Jesus has set his face toward Jerusalem. He's leading the way, and if the disciples choose to follow Christ, then they've got to choose to go there too. There's no other way and no other option. The exaltation and honor of Christ's kingdom does not come by avoiding the cross, but it only comes through the cross. And at the climax of this story, the climax is actually very close to the end, but at the climax, Jesus teaches true discipleship again, which he's been doing all through the Gospel of Mark. He does it through all of the Gospels. And, and he, in, in speaking and continuing this conversation with his disciples, he, he lifts up, you know, he reminds them of what the Gentile leaders look like, the government officials. You know how they act. You know the, the positions of power that they wield, right? And you want to be like that too, right? And James and John, along with the other disciples, they think that the new age that Christ is going to usher in, they think it's going to be just like the old age, but with new people in charge. Same kind of kingdom, but now with them in positions of influence and power. So instead of Roman occupiers, Jesus and his disciples will have the power, and they will then be able to dictate all their desires and all their plans and force others to carry them out. So Jesus kind of sets them up for this. He says, Gentile leaders, Gentile rulers, you know how they act, you know what they do, you know what they demand. And they're like, yeah, I can only imagine saying, yeah, uh-huh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Jesus says, not so with you. Because in the kingdom of heaven, the opposite is true. What the disciples saw as dichotomies and opposites, Jesus reveals as essential means. Because the kingdom of God is truly revolutionary. Truly revolutionary. Not in the sense of a battle where people are killed and overthrown and a new authority ascends until that authority is then revolutionized against and a new authority, none of that. In the kingdom of God, there is position through humility. There is authority through service. There is glory through death, and there is comfort through suffering. And Jesus says to them, do you want to be great? Be small. Do you want to lead? Then humble yourself. Do you want authority? Then serve others. There's a song, a uh, little chorus that was taken from this passage. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be the servant of all. I came to know this song really, really well because my mom would sing it to me all the time. And there were so many times where she would come into, uh, you know, the room wherever I was, and she would ask, it, it was a request, would you be willing to, you know, go out to the pantry and get this or go to the store, do that, whatever it was. She'd ask me to do something for her. And I would have some kind of typical adolescent response, you know, <sighs> heaving a sigh or do I really have to or can it wait? And she'd be like, oh, that's fine. And she would walk out of the room and as she walked out, if you want to be great in God's kingdom, it was horribly 
manipulative, and exceedingly effective. But Jesus does not manipulate his followers, you know. And to be fair to my mom, she was trying to teach me and my siblings this truth right here. So what's the resolution? Jesus says in, in this central conflict and in the climax, he's like, not so with you. But we, if we're honest with ourselves, we know the brokenness of our own hearts, right? So if someone says to me, oh, if, you're, if you humble yourself, you'll get to lead. I'm like, oh, okay. Okay, I'll humble myself. But even that attitude, it's totally self-defeating. Because what's my heart still? My heart still is exaltation. My heart still is power. My heart still is position. It's like, oh, you want to have authority? Then you need to serve. Okay, I'll serve. Let me find somebody to serve real quick so I can get authority. So then how do we do this? The very last statement that Jesus makes, that's the key to the whole passage. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This passage is bracketed by Jesus leading, right? At the beginning, we see him leading on the way to Jerusalem. And then at the end, he's leading in the way of service. He leads to the cross and he leads there by serving. And so here, I think, is the point that we must first be served by him so that we may then join in serving with him because he leads, he leads. I've, I've mentioned to you before during the time that I worked on that mission ship about the grenade attack and the injuries and all that kind of stuff, but I remember being in the hospital um, in the Philippines uh, and in a lot of pain and I really, really needed to go to the bathroom and I couldn't do it on my own but I was so resistant to being served, even by the medical staff, even by nurses. I was just like, that's too intimate, it's too private. It's like, no, I don't, I don't want that. I, don't, I can do it myself, but I couldn't. And it was, it was terribly humiliating, but I had to have help. I had to be served in that situation. And, and our hope lies in this, that it is through the death of self that we receive the life of Christ. It is by us first being served by him that we may then join him in the serving of others. Last week, we heard Jesus knock at the door of our hearts as the seeker of lost souls. And remember that in that particular passage, who was with Jesus? It was the lost. It was the sinners. And we talked about the, the implication that if we first do open the door to the seeker of our souls, which we must do, and we are found by him, then that also opens the door of our souls to those who are lost, who are with him, to whom he is going and whom he is seeking. Today, we hear Christ knock at the doors of our heart as the suffering servant. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
He came to seek and save the lost, and the way he does that is through humility and service. He knocks at the door, offering his life as a ransom for ours. Psalm 49 prophetically speaks about the Messiah, about Jesus. And it it says something directly related to this idea of a ransom. In, In Psalm 49, verses seven and eight, this is what the psalmist writes. No one can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for them. The ransom for a life is costly No payment is ever enough that they should live on forever and not see decay. Did you hear that? How expensive the ransom for our lives is. No one can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for them. The ransom for a life is costly. No payment is ever enough so that they should live on forever and not see decay. With the exception of Jesus, who came to give his life as a ransom, not only for a life, which is already so costly, as the psalmist says, but for all lives that would come to him. Jesus is the only one who can afford that ransom and the only one who offers that payment in your place. Now, I think a lot of times when we think about the concept of serving or servants, we have a misconception about that role. Um, because we think of servants doing what we don't want to do. So therefore, I hire someone or pay someone or force someone to do the stuff that's unpleasant that I don't want to do. But when it comes to Christ and the image we're given of him as the suffering servant of souls is that he as the servant does what we are unable to do for ourselves. We are unable to ransom our own lives. We're unable to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. And yet, many of us may be tempted to try to serve others without first being served by Jesus. In other words, we want to skip the humility of confession, repentance, of allowing Jesus to cleanse, heal, forgive, and empower us We want to skip straight to the serving because that other part's really hard and that other part is humiliating or humbling. But we must open the door to the servant, admitting how desperately we need the servant to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. There's another aspect, too, where there may be some who are, are dealing with such profound shame for things you've done or thought or that have happened to you in the past. That you you have believed the lie that the ransom for your life is too high even for Christ to pay. And that you're too far gone. And that the servant of souls, his service to you in paying that ransom would be insufficient. And I just want to affirm what I just said. That's a lie. It's true that no other person can pay that that ransom. But Christ's death and his payment 
is sufficient and effective if you will open the door to him and let him release that shame to him because it's already gone to him on the cross and then enter into his new life. Some of us want to open the door to the sacrifice which ransom our souls, but we don't want to open the door to the further implications that Jesus came as a servant. And this follows along with seeking and saving the lost. Because if we accept his ransom for our lives, then we also must then follow him where he goes, for a life that is ransomed belongs to the one who paid that ransom. The disciples wanted to rise with Jesus, but they did not accept that this rise could come only through the cross, that the cross actually itself was what lifted Christ up. And that that honor and glory would come only through the death of self. And so what James and John were were guilty of doing, and I wanna be clear here, this is something I see oh so clearly in myself, that tendency to co-opt the kingdom of God to build their own brand their own position, and their own kingdom. Using Jesus to build my kingdom. I want position. I want to be noticed. I want others to look up to me. I want to be asked to speak at big conferences. I want to be a a, a speaker of note. And the temptation is it's not, it, it, it doesn't have anything to do with building the kingdom of God. It's building my kingdom. We can all be tempted to use ministry, to use God's kingdom to achieve our own selfish elevation. So maybe one way we can assess this in ourselves is just asking, what do my prayer requests look like? Like if I were to list out all of my prayer requests, what what do they look like? The things I most commonly pray for. Do we see that they're they're self-serving like like James and John? Um, And we are told to come to Jesus and ask. So I'm not suggesting we shouldn't ask but it's just a way of, of helping evaluate our, our hearts with the servant's heart. And are the things for which we're asking, are they things that are building his kingdom or ultimately primarily building ours? And even I think as we imagine political change in our country, maybe we've been too influenced by the world's ideals and the world's method because the kingdom of God Here in the U.S., we'll say it this way, it really doesn't look like a conservative political power. A true revival in our country will not come about through a given political leader or party. And and see, this is what James, John, and the other 10 disciples did to them. Jesus, going to Jerusalem, was about overthrowing Rome and installing a government of them. And Jesus absolutely repudiates that. The kingdom of God is not about earthly politics or political or military power or revenge on enemies. In the words of commentator, again, David E. Garland, the kingdom of God is populated by cross-bearing Christians. Now, please, I want to, this, this, it gets complicated addressing these things because I am not suggesting that as Christians we should not be engaged in the social issues of our day. I do not suggest that we abandon politics. I do not suggest that we do not try in every way we can to elect officials who will lead our country into righteousness and truth. But what I am saying is that's not, we don't want to confuse that with the kingdom of God. We don't want to confuse the United States of America with God's kingdom because they are two different things. 
Jesus came to this earth in the body of a human baby, humble and helpless. And he came to serve humanity by giving his life as a ransom for ours. And let's open the door of our hearts to him as the servant. Accepting his life as a ransom for ours and then following him in the lifestyle of the cross, which does not seek our own earthly exaltation, but chooses instead to serve others. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, suffering servant. Come to our church. Come to our hearts. And may you find open doors. As we continue to worship the Lord through music, you know this, the the altars are open. As the Holy Spirit moves, then you are free to come. If you come to this side, someone will join you and pray with you. If you come to this side, you'll be left free to worship and pray on your own. Let's stand together. Let's continue to worship the suffering servant who knocks at our doors, offering his life as a ransom for ours. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. One way you can connect further with First Friends Church is through our website, firstfriends.org. There you can learn about our equip groups as well as our upcoming events for all ages. On Sundays, we gather at 9 and 10.30 a.m. and we'd love to see you there. Have a great week.